Well, good morning, church. All right. Oh, everybody is awake. 9 a.m., like, nothing. Good morning, nothing. You guys are ready to go. The passage that we just heard is a truly wonderful part of the Christmas story. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. It is also part of the beginning, like the introduction of the larger story that the Gospel of Luke sets out to tell us of the things that have been fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so in this passage, Luke actually introduces many themes and narrative threads that will weave their way through the entire Gospel. Themes like promise and fulfillment, humility and blessing, joy, faith, kingdom ethics, the Lord's redemptive plan for the world, and the faithfulness and greatness of God. And I'm sure that today we won't be able to cover all that could be said about these truly amazing verses, but I hope as we continue the story that we can take wonder in it together. If you were with us last week, you might remember that we looked at the two angelic encounters Um, found in Luke chapter one, the announcements to Zechariah and then to Mary of the promise of two miraculous births. And we saw how deeply linked they are. And our passage today leaves no room for doubt about just how intricately connected these two stories are as Mary visits Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, and together the two women actually marveled at God's greatness and the incredible miracle that was unfolding. This part of the story is just bursting at the seams with joy and celebration. And I so enjoyed uh, just spending time with them this week. I hope you will too. So let's dive in. The passage today is picking up Mary's story from where we left off last week. And so just to remind us of what that was, we looked at her faith-filled response to the promise that was given to her that she would bear a son and that her son would be the son of the most high, an eternal king who would rule with greatness. And now in this passage, we're given evidence of the fulfillment of that promise that was given to Mary. Now the way that Mary's pregnancy was confirmed is stunning, but it begins with a journey. The passage starts by telling us that Mary traveled a long distance to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And then maybe you noticed it it ends by just telling us that she was there for three months before returning home. And that would have been around the time of the birth of Elizabeth's baby, John. So when my husband and I first found out that we were expecting our first baby, we traveled as well. We were excited to be sure Uh, but we knew that there were others who would be excited too. This wouldn't just be our first baby, it would also be the first grandchild on both sides of the family, so it was pretty special. And we were so excited to share the news that we traveled to see our parents so that we could tell them in person. And this was not an easy endeavor. We may not have braved the trip if we had paused long enough to think it through. You see, my parents live in Sudbury, Ontario, and Imran's parents lived in Ottawa at the time, So our trip was like a massive triangle with each leg of the journey being about 600 kilometers. And if you can imagine, although Imran did all the driving, even as a passenger, 600 kilometers for an expectant mother in her first trimester was no walk in the park, especially for an expectant mother who is prone to car sickness. There were moments along the way that we seriously questioned our life choices. What were we thinking? 
Nevertheless, we showed up at our parents' door and they had no idea that we were even coming to see them and so that made it all the more exciting and joyful to greet them and to share the news with them and celebrate together. It was really special. And I'll admit, a few years later when we discovered that we were expecting baby number two, we decided phone calls would be more than sufficient (laughs) to share the good news. But it's a wonderful memory. Now imagine Mary, pregnant and traveling a far distance to see her cousin. We actually don't quite know what it was that compelled Mary to go to visit Elizabeth. The angel didn't instruct her to go, but in many ways her trip was remarkable. In the culture of that day, it would not have been typical for an engaged but not yet married woman to make this kind of journey. It's an estimated 130 to 160 kilometers from Nazareth to the hill country of Judea. We don't know how Mary was feeling as she made this trip. We don't know if she was experiencing those early signs of pregnancy, the the fatigue and the nausea. We don't know even if she was certain of her pregnancy or if maybe she suspected it but wasn't sure. You know, I don't know what measures they used in ancient times to confirm a pregnancy, right? You couldn't just walk down to your nearest drugstore and pick up a pregnancy test. So, We don't know, we don't know. Was she certain of her pregnancy or was she waiting with great anticipation for some sign that it had happened? What we do know is that she went and that she hurried to get there. And it was clearly a God-ordained moment, a moment that confirmed with a leap of joy that God's promise to Mary had been fulfilled. And I wanna talk about the leap today. It has has gripped me this week, and we can be sure that it's important because it gets repeated. And when we find something repeated in scripture, it's meant to tell us that we need to pay attention. The repetition has a purpose, and we're gonna see this actually happen multiple times in this passage of scripture. But we'll start with what's important about this joyful leap in Elizabeth's womb. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and a few verses later, Elizabeth told Mary, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now during my own pregnancies, I can remember the incredible feeling of the baby kicking and moving around, and sometimes I'd wonder, like, what on earth is going on in there? Right, sometimes you know, it could be just the baby squirming or, or you know, was the baby uncomfortable and trying to just find a different position or you know, could, could the baby be feeling frustrated, right? Like punching and kicking around <laughs> or maybe just energetic. Who's to say? But in this case, we get to know what the movement is all about because Elizabeth told us her baby leaped for joy. So how did she know this? If we read on, it says, when the baby leaped within her, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. God, by his spirit, revealed to her what this joyful movement was all about. And the mention of the Holy Spirit here should catch our attention because it actually is also a repetition. God's spirit was mentioned earlier in the chapter. We read about it last week. So let's take a look back for a moment at what was said to Zechariah about Elizabeth's baby, John. 
The angel Gabriel prophesied that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now we know why the angel Gabriel said this. John would be the one to prepare the way to announce publicly that Jesus was coming and here, filled with the Holy Spirit, he fulfilled this role for the very first time. It's pretty cool. And what an incredible way to announce the fulfillment of God's promise to Mary, a leap of joy that revealed God's great delight. Now we must not miss the incredible words of Elizabeth that come next. They're they're found in between these two repeated mentions of the leap, and that's meant to show us, like, pay attention, this is important. Because Elizabeth, filled with God's spirit, was able to speak words of inspired truth, we get to hear this interpretation of the meaning of John's movement within her, and it was profound. It was Mary's greeting, the sound of her voice that caused John to take this leap. And Mary's greeting actually also holds surprising significance. Can you guess how we know this? It's repeated. So Luke mentions it three times. So this tells us that it's important. Now it's not surprising that Mary greeted Elizabeth upon her arrival, rather than Elizabeth running out to greet her. Important people don't generally endure the burden of going to see people of lesser importance. If you're important enough, people come to you, right? It's kind of like the queen uh, in episodes of The Crown. Has anybody watched that? The prime minister comes to her. She doesn't travel to parliament to meet with him. She sits in her palace and waits for him to come. She is of greater importance, right? So in a simple way, the same can be said of Elizabeth in relation to Mary. Mary, the younger one, would have been considered less important. She had lower social standing than her older cousin, and so Elizabeth was of greater importance. And so in that sense, it was right for Mary to be the one to go to her and to greet her. But with this greeting, a shift took place. Something profound happened, and Elizabeth's words revealed it, In a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? With a simple greeting and a joy-filled leap, Elizabeth miraculously understood that Mary was the mother of a king, her Lord and Savior yet to be born, and in an instant this reversal took place, Elizabeth was humbled She was in a low position and Mary was lifted up. Throughout Luke chapter one, we are um, constantly shown Mary's lowliness. I know the angel Gabriel said she was favored by God, but this favored status was not based on anything that Mary had done. She was from an obscure little town in the back country of Galilee. When she was first introduced, there was really nothing of importance Uh, that was mentioned about her. She wasn't doing anything noteworthy, but the Lord lifted her up. And then by God's spirit, Elizabeth affirmed the truth of this reality that Mary was favored by God. She was blessed. And blessing is an important concept in in Luke's gospel. Luke points towards just how significant it is by how many times the word blessed appears in this section of the text. Once again, notice the repetition. It's there three times. 
Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. Blessed is she who has believed. Blessing is all over this passage. And the idea of being blessed is actually a major theme in the Gospel of Luke. And we should probably take a moment to talk about it because we often have a mistaken understanding of what it means to be blessed. We easily fall into thinking that God's blessing is all about receiving good things. If someone's life is filled with success and wealth and power, security and happiness, we tend to think they are blessed. But this is not a right understanding. So what does it mean that Mary was blessed? It didn't mean that her life would be marked by success and wealth and power. To be sure, her life was now marked by her unique place in God's kingdom, but think about what this blessing would look like in her life as it unfolded. Yes, the baby would surely bring joy, but she would also live to see him rejected, condemned, and executed. Her own heart would be pierced with grief. Even so, it's striking to see in Mary's story evidence of the powerful reversal that God was pointing towards. Mary was favored by God, not despite her lowliness, but because of it. And not only was it a joyful thing to her that God had chosen her, this reversal from lowly to blessed was meant to be a sign of things to come, a foretaste of the full-scale reversal that Jesus was coming to initiate, a new social order unlike anything that the world had seen before. This had been promised, and it would be fulfilled. And Elizabeth's final spirit-filled words are meant to remind us of this hope. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary believed that God would do what he said he would do. And she experienced the fulfillment of the promise that had been given to her. And this would serve as a sign to the world that an even greater fulfillment of God's promises was coming. And as I read this line this week, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. I was reminded of Mary's amazing faith-filled response to God's word that we saw last week. Let it be as you have said. And as I remembered this, some words from that passage echoed through my mind, for no, go- no word from God will ever fail. And I recall as I worked on last week's message, I actually wrestled a bit with what it might mean for me to emphasize these words to you that God will never fail, to invite you to have faith like Mary's, to believe with all your heart that nothing will be impossible with God. I wrestled with it because I know that right here in our community in this season, many of you are going through hard things, sad things, painful things. So what would it mean for me to stand here in front of you and say that with God, impossible things become possible when I know that many here are waiting for God to go ahead and do those impossible things that we are longing for him to do. I know that there are painful questions resting so close to many of our hearts today. Will the pain of my grief ever give way to joy again? Will the cancer treatment work? Will we be able to pay the mortgage? Will we be able to have children someday? Will my marriage survive? Will my kids be okay? Will the grip of my addiction ever loosen? Will the anxiety ever let up? Will the depression ever lift? And I know that there are bigger questions about our world that are also near the surface these days. 
Will we ever see an end to persecution? Will peace ever come? Will oppression ever cease? How do we hold all of this in light of the beautiful hope that the Christmas story asks us to enter into? Hope that the miraculous birth of a baby could signal the start of a revolution that would overturn the brokenness of our world. In the face of the suffering in our world and in our lives, we have this deep longing for God to step in and do the impossible for us. But do we dare to believe that in every broken circumstance of our lives, what seems impossible to us is not impossible to God? Should we dare to believe it? First, I'll say this. He can do miraculous things. It's true. There are moments coming in our lives and in our world where Jesus will come to break through the darkness with his glorious light, where we'll be given a taste of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. It is possible and God can do it. But I will also say this, that there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to weep and a time to laugh. There is much that we don't understand and it is not for us to decide the timing of when God will set right what is broken. We don't know how God will move in the present moment and this creates tension that can lead to great difficulty in our faith because sometimes our mistaken ideas about what we think God should do and what we think it means to be blessed combined with this invitation to believe that God can do impossible things leads us to expect God to give us a life that actually hasn't been promised to us. And because of this, because he doesn't always do the things that we hoped he would do, he doesn't always give us the things that we thought he should give us. Instead of feeling blessed, we end up feeling forsaken, as if God, who could do anything, has forgotten about us. But when Jesus began his ministry, he taught us what being blessed was all about. He explained what being blessed would look like here in the messy in-between of God's arriving kingdom, now but not yet. And I'm confident that it looks nothing like we want it to look sometimes. Just listen for a moment to what Jesus taught. In Luke chapter six, famously known as the Beatitudes, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. I think these words are familiar to many of us. It's a picture of what blessing looks like in God's kingdom. And you know, early on in the week, I had a sense that we needed to read these Beatitudes today, like I wrote in my notes, like I think this is gonna be about the Beatitudes. Their connection to the story is important. But that didn't prepare me for what I saw when I opened my Bible this week to Luke chapter six. I couldn't believe what comes next in the passage. Right, blessed are you who are poor, hungry, weeping. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject you. Rejoice. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy 
because great is your reward in heaven. Leap for joy. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is how we should respond to the good news of God's upside down kingdom ethics. Leap for joy, lowly ones, hungry ones, hurting ones, weeping ones, you are blessed. Favored ones of God, you will be lifted up. Not despite your lowliness, but because of it, you have a special place in God's kingdom. And so you can rejoice because Christ is coming. Christ has come. Christ will come again to set things right, to bring about a great and unexpected reversal. Leap for joy because God's kingdom is for you. Leap for joy. I literally jumped out of my chair with excitement when I read these words. Right, I had dropped my kids off. It was Wednesday night. I had dropped them off in youth. Uh, and so there was no one back in the office and I'm sitting there working and I read that and, and like the noise that came out of my office, like thank goodness nobody was in, in the office area. I was like, come on. And I jumped up and like I couldn't even sit down and I had to just like take a walk and, and, and take a minute. Eventually, I've calmed down and I settled in to continue reading Luke 6, and and the contrast in this next section of teaching was pretty stark. Like the verses that come next don't sound joyful at all. Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Definitely not joyful, right? But it completes the picture of the way that God's kingdom will flip things upside down. The powerful ones will be brought low and the lowly will be lifted up. In God's kingdom, we'll be surprised to discover who's favored, who is closest to the heart of God, who the important ones will be. Mary was the first. Her transformation from lowly to blessed was the first fruits of this mission of God that Jesus was coming to fulfill. The very sound of Mary's voice as she greeted Elizabeth sparked a spirit-filled leap of joy inspired by God's great delight to see his plan beginning to unfold. And this upside-down kingdom that sparked such divine joy The kingdom that Jesus came to usher in is such good news that in the midst of our own lowliness, Jesus invites us to leap for joy, to join God in his delight at the great reversal that has been promised and that has begun. And somehow, by some miracle, Mary had this profound understanding of all of this. She understood something of the reversal that was coming, and we can see it clearly in the passage as it continues on, because words of praise just overflowed from Mary's heart, celebrating what God had done and what the Lord was coming to accomplish. With this song, Mary joined her voice with a long history of biblical characters, people like Moses and Miriam, Deborah and Hannah, who all burst into a song of praise because, God's, because of God's miraculous, redemptive power at work in their lives. This song of Mary's is richly filled with themes of God's strength and greatness and mercy and his redemptive power, 
We will barely scratch the surface of it today, but as I read it for you now, I just want to invite you to notice the incredible picture that Mary painted of the greatness of God and of the reversal that would come that had indeed already started as Jesus arrived to usher in the kingdom of God. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. As we move through Mary's song, we see her shift from praising God, declaring what God has done for her, to celebrating what God will do for the whole world. And you can hear the kingdom of God reversal in Mary's words. The Beatitudes echo throughout. Rulers will be brought down, but the humble will be lifted up. The hungry will be filled with good things, but the rich will be sent away empty. And I love how Mary finishes talking about how God remembers to be merciful. One more reminder that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. There are a few things that are important to notice. First, it's evident that this whole story is deeply anchored in the salvation story of the Israelites. We talked last week about the importance of genealogies in these passages, the important connections the characters have to Abraham and Sarah's family tree. And Mary's song touches on these same themes in her closing two verses. But this doesn't mean that God's promises, his redemptive purposes for the world would belong only to the descendants of Abraham. We can be confident of this if we look back because God promised Abraham that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. Mary's song provides us a clue that this is true, that God's redemptive purposes for the world are available to everyone. In verse 50, she declares that his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. The mercy of God would extend to anyone who feared the Lord. God's redemptive power would reach beyond Abraham and his descendants. And some of the, the opening words from the Gospel of John, I think, actually help to illuminate this for us. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the next verse in this passage, it's such a great verse for the Christmas season. I thought we just have to keep reading. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's beautiful. And here the word glory actually helps us understand Mary's words about God's mercy extending to those who fear him. We'd probably like Mary's line to read that his mercy extends to those who love him or those who accept him or believe in him, but it says those who fear him. 
And I think like fear of God isn't necessarily a popular idea. But this is talking about those who really see who God is, who stand in awe of his mightiness, those who understand the greatness of the Lord. And we don't have time to do a deep dive into the concept of God's glory, but for today, let's simply recognize that there's something about God's glory that is fearsome. If humans tremble at the sight of the angels, imagine what our response should be at the sight of God himself. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. As Mary anticipated this incredible event, the incarnation, God enfleshed in human form, she declared that those who understood and saw the magnitude of it, those who recognized the Lord and saw his greatness and his glory would experience his mercy. It would be available to all who fear him. And with this in mind, I think it's important for us to understand that this opportunity to receive God's mercy would be available even to those who needed to be brought down low. N.T. Wright has taught that God will confront a world full of arrogance and pride and wealth and carelessness and brutality so that he can turn it all right side up. This is not only good news for the lowly and the oppressed and the suffering ones, it is also intended to be good news for the powerful ones who need to be brought low. Because God wants to rescue them from their sin, their pride, their abusiveness, their selfishness, he's coming for them too. The Christmas story can be good news for them if they will allow it to be. God's kingdom reversal this work of subverting the powerful is meant to be an act of grace for all. He will bring them low in hopes that they might choose to embrace this low position and recognize his kingship over, his life, over their lives. God's aim is to obliterate the broken, sinful structures of our world so that we may find the path of peace. And this is at the heart of God's kingdom ethics he is inviting us into a way of living where we humble ourselves and we submit to his authority in our lives. A way of living that reverses the damage done all the way back in Genesis when humanity decided to go their own way to try to be God for ourselves. This was the genesis of the brokenness in our world. And humanity has been at war opposing each other and opposing God ever since. And it's God's desire to set this right. God's great delight at the coming of Jesus into this broken world that we see in this passage, this joyful leap prompted by his spirit that confirmed the coming king was on his way was wrapped up in God's gracious longing and intention for peace, to see his world redeemed and restored to the goodness it was created for. And Mary, her song burst forth to celebrate that God's great reversal had begun. In a moment, the worship team is gonna come and lead us in singing the words of Mary's song. It's famously known as the Magnificat because of the first line of the song, my soul glorifies the Lord. Some translations more famously read, my soul magnifies the Lord. But it's, this is about seeing God's glory, seeing his greatness. It's a wonderful line as Mary declares that God has done marvelous things, 
But it's her second line that I want to close with today. It, it also really got my attention this week. The second line says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's spirit rejoiced. And I'm not sure why, but it sort of occurred to me to just take a look at the definition of the Greek word here translated as rejoices. And I found it described in this way, to rejoice means getting so glad one jumps in celebration. <laughs> All right. <laughs> here with Mary's words of praise, she joined the leap. She took delight, she rejoiced to experience the beginnings of God's salvation plan for humanity, and she wouldn't just watch it unfold, she would participate in it. N.T. Wright has pointed out that Mary's song, The Magnificat, is so well-loved that it has been set to music many times, and churches all over the world sing these words often, but they also often fail to take them seriously. So the question remains for us today as we prepare to sing these words. Will we enter into the joy and wonder and peace of God's redemptive plan for the world? Will we join in Mary's song of salvation and rejoice at the kingdom reversal that we are invited to participate in? Let's pray and then we'll sing together. Lord, help us to truly take seriously the kingdom reversal that you came to show us. Help us to understand our lowliness and your greatness. Help us to understand the ways that you have blessed us and open our eyes to see the ways in which we need you to humble us. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we've tried to seek importance, status, wealth, and power, especially when it has come at the expense of others. Humble us, God, and bring us low. And help us, like Elizabeth, to recognize that you are the Lord, our Savior. Lead us in humility to give our lives to you. As we do this, we lift up to you those in our midst who are blessed, the ones who are hurting, hungering, weeping, grieving, the suffering ones who are humbly longing for your saving work to unfold in their lives. In the midst of their pain and difficulties, we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Hurry to them today. Encourage them with the comfort of your presence and the assurance of your love for them. Help them to take heart, lift them up, remind them now that they are already blessed. Your kingdom is for them. Lord Jesus, whatever our circumstances, we trust and believe your promise that one day every broken and painful thing will be set right. You will make everything new. You will wipe away every tear. We thank you that you have not forgotten us. We are not forsaken. In the mess and chaos of our broken world, you came and you continue to come to us and you will come again. And because of this today, Lord, we rejoice. Our hearts are filled with joy in remembering your great faithfulness. 
your mighty power, your rich love, and your gracious blessing for those who belong to your kingdom of peace. We pray by your spirit and in the name of your precious son, Jesus.